Well, we're in First Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 6 to 9. If you have a Bible, please open it up. If not, the verses will be on the screen when we get there. I want to begin, though, uh, by asking a question. This is not a theological question or necessarily a Bible question. It is an engineering question. It's a question I've asked many times as I have driven uh, on the lower road near the Portman Bridge. And the question is this. How did they get that concrete pillar in the middle of the Fraser River? How do they do that? Honestly, how can you get that, that thing secure in, in moving water? This is a question that has bothered me for a while. So finally, I googled it, as we, all, we should do when we have questions like this. And I have an answer. Today's the day of answers. Uh, the answer is this, a cofferdam. A cofferdam is the answer. Uh, cofferdams are, as you can see, these structures that are built uh, when they want to build something down into the riverbed or even the ocean floor. It's uh, a structure that looks like that. Sometimes it's circular. It's made of heavy gauge corrugated metal. They build it. They weld it together somehow underwater, I think, and then they pump out the water so that it's a dry environment. Then they can build the foundation so that it's, you know, secure and stable. They build it high enough. They take away the dam. The water flows in, and they, they build the bridge. And presto, you have this very stable structure in the midst of a fast-flowing river or ocean or whatever. I mention this, not just because it's really cool, which it is, but because I think it's instructive for our faith. What it tells us is that stability under pressure only comes through a lot of hard work and a lot of preparation. You you can't just throw up a bridge like that, any significant bridge. You, you, you need the right design, the right preparation. You need to build it properly. And when you do that, you can have confidence in the structure. Even if the waters rise, if the winds come, whatever it may be, it will, it will remain secure. The same is true for our faith. Now, let's be clear. Our faith is given to us as a gift by God. He is the one who makes that happen to begin with. But for us to have confidence in our faith, for us to grow in our faith, especially in days of trouble, we need to do some work. And by work, I mean we need to grow in our understanding of what trials actually are from God's point of view, what our life is all about, and where it's all going. We need to do the work of developing a theology of trials and suffering. Uh, as a pastor, I've talked with many people over the years and difficult times in their lives. There's a significant difference between someone who had a theology of suffering, an understanding of the trials of life from God's point of view before the trials came, and someone who's trying to find God in the midst of the trials. Now, don't get me wrong. God is there. You can find him in the midst of the storm, but it's so much easier if you already know his role in relation to trials if you already know his purposes in the, the difficulties of our lives. So what we're going to do today primarily is to help develop that foundation. To help, if, if you don't already have it, or maybe add to it a theology, an understanding of God's role in suffering and how we are to think of it as people of faith. Um, for some of you, this uh, may be good timing in the sense that you're not experiencing a trial right now. And so it's the perfect time, in a sense, to really to wrestle with that. Uh, hopefully this text will push you. Hopefully some of the ideas will make you maybe question things you thought before and come to a solid understanding so that when the trials come, you'll be ready. For others, maybe it's good timing because you're in the midst of a trial and you need some answers. You're, you're wondering, you know, where is God in this? So wherever you are, um, I'm hoping, I'm praying that this will be instructive for us. So our text as I said, is 1 Peter 1, 6 to 9. 
Uh, I'm going to read it, and then we'll, we'll unpack it together. Here's God's word to us this morning, uh, given by the Holy Spirit through Peter. Verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's God's word to us this morning, and we are going to work through it in three parts. Each part, we're going to look at the nature of something significant. So really understanding the true nature of various things. The first thing is this. The true nature of life that we see here is that there will be trials. There will be trials. Uh, This is a crucial point. One that I think not every Christian, maybe not many Christians, have settled their hearts and minds about. That as a follower of Jesus, uh, there are going to be trials in your life. Unless you have that as the foundation of your faith, just the core understanding of what your life will be like as you follow Jesus, then you're going to be sunk before you even start. Because when trials come, instead of dealing with a specific trial, you're going to spend a lot of your time, a lot of your emotional energy trying to reconcile, you know, what what is this? Why is this so hard? What about God? Where is he? I thought he was good. I thought he was loving. I thought he was in control. How, How could this happen? If you don't understand that there will be trials from the get-go according to God's plan, you're going to spend a lot of time wrestling with that as if, as if the presence of trials means that God's plans have totally fallen apart. That's sometimes what we wrestle with, which is why we need a, a support structure of biblical theology. We need to, need to have the understanding that there will be trials. It's, it's to be expected. We should not be surprised. In fact, here's what we see in 1 Peter chapter 4. So it's a little bit later. Peter's going to say it even more directly. He says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He's saying to, the, to his audience and to us, look, you, you should not be surprised. You should expect this. And, and more than expecting it, you should be anticipating how it's going to be used for your good. Now, he gives us some details about the nature of the trials. Uh, Verse 6, he says this, Now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So the first bit, now for a little while, tells us that trials are temporary. It's only 80, 90 years sometimes, right? It's short compared to eternity, so it's not not forever. That's, That's good news, but he does say... He does say that it will grieve us, that we'll be grieved, meaning the Bible acknowledges this isn't, you know, just sloughed off as just a, a diff, you know, slight inconvenience. It's saying there's real heartache when it comes to the trials of life. The Bible acknowledges that, enters into that space. We are really grieved because of the, the challenges that God, God allows. The, the phrase, if necessary, right? Now for a little while, if necessary, is kind of a backwards way of saying it, it will be necessary, As we're going to see later, there are necessary things that God does in us through trials. So he's kind of, you know, rhetorically saying, if it's necessary, but it is. Um, The last thing we see here is that there will be various trials, which um, is pretty clear when you look at just the New Testament. 
in terms of the kinds of adversity that God's people endure. In fact, the word for trial in our text, the Greek word parasimos, if you look at where that's used throughout the New Testament, there's all sorts of things that, that God's people endure. It's reference, um, used as a reference to the wilderness times, remember uh, where God's people were wandering the desert for 40 years? So telling us that a trial time could be a time we feel lost, we feel abandoned, we feel like we don't have any way forward or aren't sure where we're supposed to go. It's also used in reference to times of persecution, of course, when people are are ridiculing us for our faith, pushing back on us uh, for our faith, harming us. That's certainly the trials that's expected. There's even a reference to, uh, Paul talks about this time when he was, you know, he's beat up all the time, right? He's stoned and he walks into the Galatian church. He's all bloody near death and they had to care for him. And Paul says to them, that was a trial for you. Telling us that there are sometimes trials, some of the more significant trials of our life is when a loved one is in pain. When it's not us, it's someone else who's dealing with physical pain, emotional pain. And that's the trial that, that we're still struggling with. And of course, temptation. Temptation, the same word is used. Uh, and I think we, we know that, that there's often a real, a real battle in our very souls and hearts as we struggle uh, with temptation to sin. That, that can be a trial. So Peter's saying, uh, we should expect life to contain all of these things. It's the nature of, of our walk with the Lord. The road, the road of faith is, is the glorious road, the good road, the blessed road, but it is not necessarily a smooth road or a straight road. It can be very bumpy. There are times when we have to slow way down. There are times we have to fight just, just to make an inch on this road. Now, I'm not sure if we really understand this. Some of you have lived in places of the world or Canada, with rough roads. Here in the Lower Mainland, I mean, they're, they're not that rough, right? Even out in Maple Ridge, right? It's not, I mean, they're not all, sorry. You know what I mean. We experience uh, gravel roads, we think they're rough. I, I remember uh, tree planting for one summer, and we would use the logging roads to get up to the, the planting blocks. Those were rough roads. They, there would be potholes. I remember one time we came up, it was a new block we hadn't planted there before, a big caravan of trucks, and the road was like, washed out, not fully, but partially. So we'd look down this like eight foot gap and then the other side. In real life, you would just be like, well, I, I guess we're not working today. But in planting life, you never want to go a day without planting trees because that's how you make your money. So everyone kind of looks around and we, there's logs. So we go and start grabbing logs. We fill in this big gap, takes us about an hour. Then the trucks, they get a run at it and they just fly over this makeshift bridge, wood going everywhere. And at the end of the day, you know what we said? That's planting. That was our expression. That's planting, meaning we know every day we wake up, there's going to be some crazy, impossible thing that we have to do. Trucks break down all over the place, and you just, you get through it because that's what it's all about. You're not there for a vacation. You're there to put trees in the ground, to make money, and there's going to be difficult. What Peter's saying is that it should be the expectation we have about life. There are going to be impossible, difficult, heartbreaking things that happen. I think it's good to ask the question, is that new to you? Like, do you, do you have that expectation for your life if you're a person of faith? Because I think it's very possible to come to faith with only hearing the good things about Christianity, of which there are tons, right? The love of God, the grace of God, the hope of heaven, all of that is true. But sometimes in the way that Christianity is shared, we, we don't realize that there's challenges involved. 
I mean, Jesus wasn't unclear about this, but, but sometimes we can come to faith and be, and be surprised. I thought God was with me. I thought he was going to bless me. If you're a guest here this morning, if you're not a person of faith, at this point, you might be thinking to yourself, you know, I, I thought the church would kind of like try to convince everyone about how great it is. But you seem to be talking about the difficulties of it. Why would you do that? And the answer, of course, is that we, we don't want to be unclear we want, it, we want to do what Jesus did, which is to say, come follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. In this direction is the best way to go, the road to life, but it's, it's going to be challenging. It's going to be difficult. The other thing I'd point out is that a life of trials is not exclusive to the Christian church. I mean, everyone, the world over, experiences trials. The real question is, do the trials in my life have any purpose? Is there any point to them? And, and the Christian church has the best answer to that question because the answer from the Bible, the answer from God is yes, absolutely. Every single trial of your life is there for a purpose, is to be used by me for good purposes in your life. And so that's what we're going to turn our attention to. There will be trials. We should expect it. The next, the next nature we're going to look at is the nature of trials themselves. And what we see very clearly is that they are purposeful. It's a second thing. The true nature of the trials that will be in our lives is that they are purposeful. We see this in verse 7. Verse 7, Peter says, um, all of that happens, the trials happen, so that, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the purpose of the trials in our lives is that they, they prove the genuineness of our faith. Uh, the image there is the, is the classic Christian image of a refiner's fire. That for metal, like gold, it's precious, but it needs to be refined. It, to see how valuable it is, how pure it is, you have to heat it up. Uh, you can take out all the impurities and then you know that it's, that it's pure gold. It's necessary to see the value of the gold because it can have lots of impurities in it. And the analogy is being made, this, the same is true for our faith. That with our faith, it needs to be tested. It would be wrong to assume that something is valuable without testing it. Uh, for example, just to kind of go off of this gold analogy. Imagine that you had a very rich, great, great uncle who died. And in his will, there's all this inheritance for all of your family. And he left you some gold, gold bars because he's really old. And everyone back in the days, they carried gold, didn't they? I don't know. So, gold bars, uh, three of them, uh, one pound, you, you weigh it out, it, one pound each, three pounds of gold. So you go online, as I did last night, and you find that it's worth $80,000. Canadian, that's, if you, had, if you had gold bars, three pounds of pure gold, it would be worth $80,000. You're ecstatic. This is fantastic. This is the best inheritance. You're thinking of what you're going to do. You're not going to spend it right now. We're going to save it for later. Save it for retirement, for a house, for whatever age you are, for school, whatever it may be. That's great. That's exciting. But think for a moment. Think of how foolish it would be to not test the gold. Like just to assume that it's pure gold. I mean, there's no stamps on it. It looks kind of old, but it's, it's heavy. It's gold-like. Wouldn't it be foolish just to put it in a safety deposit box? And then assume that you have $80,000 waiting for you? I mean, what if you take it out 10 years later and you go to cash it in? They're like, oh, there's a lot of stuff in here. It's worth like half as much, a quarter as much. You would want to test it. You would be wise to test it before you counted on it. See, that, 
That's how the Bible talks about our faith, that we tend to assume a level of strength, a level of purity, just because we say we believe. And just because we do certain Christian things, maybe because we, we had a, a powerful spiritual experience with God in the past, maybe at camp, maybe when we were baptized. And since then, we do faith stuff. You know, we read the Bible sometimes, we're here sometimes, we pray every, every now and again, and we think that everything is good. What God is saying is, how about we just test it? Wouldn't it be good to test that faith of yours? To apply some heat, apply some pressure, to see what, what it's really made of, to see what the substance of your faith actually is? It's a good thing. Seems wise, but it's difficult. There's another word that helps us to see this dynamic of kind of the proving, the testing, and how important it is. Uh, the word is tribulation. Uh, tribulation uh, is a word that's a synonym, obviously, for trial, and we find it in the Bible. Here's how Jesus um, speaks to us, to his followers, John 16, 33. <clears throat> he says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, meaning you will have difficulties, suffering, <clears throat> testing, trials. But that word tribulation is helpful because it comes from a thing, a piece of farming equipment called a tribulum. Now a tribulum looks like this. I give you lots of pictures. That's an, a sketch of it. You can see it's like a sled. And on the bottom, you can see the close-up. They pound in sharp fragments of pottery or bone or rock. And what they do is they use it to thresh the grain. So there you can see they even use it to this day. They put the grain out on the ground and they pull the tribulum over it. And the pressure and the cutting nature of all those sharp things exposes the grain at the center of the sheaf of wheat. It's a good thing. It reveals whether, in fact, there is grain there. In fact, you couldn't get at the grain unless you thresh it, unless you apply pressure and, and, and the sharpness to it. The same is true for our faith. We don't know what's at the center of what we believe until there is pressure applied, until, until there is challenge. That tribulation that Jesus speaks about is, is beneficial for us. I've talked to a lot of people over the years who've endured trials and tribulation, and yet instead of responding in faith, they, they've walked away from the faith. They, they've, they've stopped their regular rhythms. Things got difficult at home, at work, wherever it may be, and they just they stopped gathering with the church, stopped praying. Sometimes it's a hardness of heart. Sometimes it's an anger. Sometimes it's just they were grabbing onto other things. They found themselves hoping or trusting and finding comfort in other things, and before long, they were, they were far away from the Lord. The tribulation, the trial, revealed the fact that at the center of their faith, there was a hollowness there. They hadn't realized. When it was easy, they, they assumed that their faith was strong. It needed to be revealed. There was no grain inside, and of course, that's devastating for them, for their family, whether they realize it or not. But there are others, many others who remained stable under the pressure. There's been people that I've met with in the most devastating times of their lives. They're weeping, they're crying, and yet they're saying to me, they're saying to me, Matt, I've never felt so close to the Lord. Like, like I'm, I'm devastated, but I've never prayed so much. I've never learned so much from the Bible. I've never experienced this before. I'm so thankful for it, even though it's, it's so difficult. There's a pastor that I, I knew from Willingdon Church uh, when I was on staff there, his name is Daryl Croker. 
Uh, he would sometimes uh, tell the story of, of losing his first family in a car accident. Uh, he was very young, uh, his family's very young, young kids, and, and they were all killed and he was left alive. Uh, he said after the funeral, uh, he went outside and just to a field, I think he was in Saskatchewan at the time, and uh, he just looked up at the sky and, and he just had a conversation with God and he said, God, either I'm gonna walk away or I'm going to remain with you to the end. Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Either this is it. Either this is too much and I walk away forever or, or my faith is going to remain. And he said, I couldn't walk away. And he, and he didn't articulate exactly what was going on, but what I imagine must have been going on is first of all that God was holding him just in his sovereign care and grace, but also, also the things that he knew about God, they were the substance of his faith. That he already, he had some handholds, some things to grab onto in terms of who is God in the midst of this extreme trial. And the things that he would point to are the things in our passage. I don't know, if, I don't know for sure, but look at verse 6 again. I'm going to distill it so you see what it's saying there. Now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, we survive these kinds of trials because we understand the nature of our life. We understand the nature of the trials, the character of God and what he's doing in them and through them. And of course, in the midst of them, we are being shaped. We're being purified. See, now is the time to build this into your life. Now is the time to, to build a support structure rooted in the character of God, rooted in the truths of Scripture, so that when the trials come, you won't be surprised. You will have an answer to some of the questions in your mind and your heart. You will know that God is at work even in the midst of, of horrific, difficult, heart-wrenching things. You will see the glorious purpose of it all. God is proving our faith He's trying to grow in us that which is most valuable, most worthy. A sense of trust in the God of the universe. Even in the difficulties. That's what's needed for a theology of suffering. A theology of trials. But, but there's something else. There's an element that I, I think is unique to the, the Christian understanding of trials. I mean, up to this point, in a sense, you could say, okay, um, trials will be part of life. I don't need to be part of the church to, to believe that. Uh, the trials in my life will be good for me. I don't need to be a Christian to believe that either. Lots of people say the hard things will you know, make you stronger. But this last element is unique to the gospel, unique to Christian teaching, and that is that we need to add joy to our trials, joy to our experience of suffering. That's the third thing we're going to see, the true nature of joy. And you see it actually twice in our text. Twice in our text. The first one is fairly straightforward. The second one brings us deep, deep into biblical theology. Here, here's here's a verse six. First one is this. Peter writes, in this you rejoice. In this you rejoice. So what's the this he's talking about? Uh, well, if you're with us last week, the this is verses three to five. All of the great, amazing things that we have in Christ. If you remember last week, we learned that we were born again by the power of God to a living hope 
that's held by the grace of God to an inheritance that is uh, imperishable, undefiled, unfading. All of these amazing, wondrous things that we have as Christians, as people of faith. What Peter's saying is, in, you rejoice in that, which is experienced a little bit here, but mostly in the future. Which I think we understand. When it comes to having hope and joy, a lot of the times we're looking to the future. We, we get to work on Monday, we're not feeling very joyful, a whole week ahead of us. But we kind of perk ourselves up by saying, you know, the weekend is coming. Or holidays are coming. Or whatever it is in the future, that's the dynamic and a a right dynamic for us as people of faith. There's much better days coming in heaven. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be wonderful. We should cast our minds ahead to those things. But look at verse 8. Because verse 8 talks about even a different kind of joy. Verse 8 says this. Though you have not seen him, Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So what's going on here? Peter's saying, look, Jesus is uh, gone right now. Even to the people he was talking to, Jesus had already gone back up to heaven. They had not seen him face to face. And he's saying, you don't see him, but you believe in him. That's, that's faith. That's what Jesus says to Thomas. You can see me, that's great. But even more blessed are those who don't see me and believe. But not only do you believe in him, Peter's saying, you rejoice in him. You rejoice in Jesus with a joy that is inexpressible. Why does he put it that way? Why is that joy difficult to express? Because of all the emotions, joy is usually the, one of the easiest ones to express. We're happy, we're excited, hallelujah, praise God, whatever we, we might say. So why, why is it hard right here? The reason it's hard is because it's not joy for the future. It's joy in the present It's joy in the midst of the trials, in the midst of the suffering. This is where this teaching draws us deep into the nature of who we are in Christ, who we are as followers of the one who suffered on the cross. Because what we're seeing here is something we see scattered throughout the New Testament, that we are a people that can find and should find joy even in the midst of our sufferings, not just looking forward to the future, but in the moment, in the pain. Paul describes, uh, puts these two things together when he describes us. Here's a little segment from a passage where he's talking about Christians, talking about how there's this contradictory nature in us. There's there's things that seem to be contradictory, but they're together in us. Uh, So here's 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. He says, We are treated as impostors, yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. So the last two, right? Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That's not just poetic language. That, that's actually how people of faith live. That the trials of our lives bring real pain, real sorrow, real tears. And yet the truths of the gospel, they temper that pain, infuse that pain with, with real joy, with gladness even thankfulness at times. And the reasons for that are, are many in the gospel, right? We, we know, even in the midst of our pain, that Jesus endured greater pain for us so that we might live. We know that we've been given his spirit to comfort us, to help us, to guide us. 
we know how it will all turn out in the end. We know that Jesus is alive and that one day we too will be alive because of his work, because of all the, the gifts that he's given us. There's joy in the midst of pain. And that joy is difficult to express. It's not the kind of joy that you sing about easily. It's the kind of joy that's, that's difficult to put words to. The image that came to my mind as I thought about it was our, our hearts as like a football stadium filled with darkness. And yet, in the middle of it, like at center field, there's this, this lone candle burning of joy, of hope. And it's hard to even explain why it's still there. Like, like why would the darkness not snuff it out? And if people ask us in the midst of our great pain how, how you can be stable, how you're not slipping into despair, we, we're not sure quite what to say except that we know with Jesus there's always a way forward. With Jesus there's always hope. Hebrews 12, 2 says it this way, we look to Jesus, the founder, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, the truth about the nature of our trials and the nature of our joy is that we can have joy because our trials bring us closer to Jesus. That, that's, that's at the core of the gospel, the core of, of this biblical understanding of all of these things. We see it in the Bible. We see it in the lives of the faithful. I came across uh, this quote by a man named Malcolm Muggeridge. He's a British journalist born 1903, died in 1990. He became a Christian uh, partway through his life, just after World War II, but he lived uh, quite long. And here's what he wrote at age 75. I'm going to read the first part and then put some of it up on the screen so you can focus on it. He says this, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I've ever learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through affliction, not through happiness. In other words, here's what I want us to see. In other words, if it were ever to be possible to eliminate affliction from our earthly existence, the result would not be to make life delectable, but to make it too banal or boring and trivial to be endurable. This, of course, is what the cross signifies. And it is the cross, more than anything else, that has called me inexorably to Christ. What he's saying here is the inexpressible joy of our present trials is that through them we find greater communion with Jesus. That we know him more through the trials. There's other types of happiness, other types of joy. When things are peaceful and great and we're lying on a sunny beach, fantastic. But that's not the true substance of joy for the Christian. That's not the thing that helps us to endure. The real reason for joy is that we get more of Jesus through it. The real reason for trials is that we get more of Jesus through it. And that's the real test. That, that's the question that all of us must try to figure out. Is that worth it in your mind? If that's the answer that God is giving, is it worth it? Is all the pain and all the suffering worth it? Is, is knowing Jesus more intimately of greater value to you than a life of earthly peace? Like if you had the two to choose from. Because if you think about the way that we pray, how do we pray most of the time? Lord, take this away from me. Lord, make it easier. Make it more peaceful. Lord, I can't endure it. Lord, if you loved me, it wouldn't be this hard. And look, 
we need to pray for those things too. It's not wrong to try to make your life easier, to try to work on your life to make things better. But there are many things in our lives that are beyond our power, that are clearly there by the hand of God. And what's our response? Are we eager to know Christ more in the midst of those trials? Does that seem worth it to us? We need to know the answer to this question because because that's the essence of our struggle. That's the essence of our true discouragement. Is is Lord, in the midst of this, where are you? Why are you allowing this? What's going on? I I thought you loved me. How could you possibly be doing this? His answer is always the same. I'm doing this that you might know Jesus more that you might be able to better worship your Savior, better understand his sufferings, better understand the depth of his love for you. Cling to him more fully because you see that the rest of the things in this world are falling away. This is exactly how Paul describes his own life, his own sufferings. There's this beautiful passage in Philippians where he speaks about the value of knowing Christ. Here it is. Uh, Philippians 3, verse 8 to 11. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him And the power of his resurrection and may share, look at that word, may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's what Peter points to as well. He says it's through this life, through this life of suffering, we grow nearer to Jesus. And look at verse 9 in our text. All of this happens, what's the outcome? We obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. This doesn't mean that we have to live a a perfect, faithful life and then at the end, God will save us once we prove that we've done it well enough. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is what we see throughout the New Testament. Those who are truly saved, those who are born again, they are the ones who will persevere to the end. That will demonstrate the faith that God has given us through tribulations, through trials, through even death because, because we are convinced that our true hope and joy is rooted in Christ himself. And so we persevere. We don't step away. We don't lose heart. The true nature of our joy is rooted in Christ. It's in him that all this is pointing to. All the trials, all the variations, all the challenges. It's pointing to more of Jesus. Now, to experience this, to to experience this fully, to enter into this space where we are ready to draw near to the Lord. It takes humility. It takes humility because it means submitting to God's plan. It It means there'll be a lot less prayers about how your life should be different and a lot more prayers about, Jesus, help me to know you in the midst of this. I trust you, God. I trust that you know what's best for me. I've prayed that it would change. It hasn't changed. I might keep praying, but I'm not going to be fighting you in my heart and my soul. It also takes faith. It takes faith because we we can't see where we're going. The nature of the road very often is it's dark ahead of us. We only have a little candle. We're we're saying, Lord, you you know the way. And 
And the argument I'm making this morning is that it takes a theological conviction, a depth of understanding about who God is, what his role is in trials, what he's putting them in our lives for, and how we are to respond. All of that comes from, from here, from the Bible. It comes from praying, Holy Spirit, help me. Help me to really understand my life. Help me to be stable and secure so that when things happen, I don't, I don't up and run. So, for those of you who are in the midst of your trial right now, I really, I really hope and pray this has been helpful for you this morning. I hope, that it's, I hope that it's helped to answer some of your questions, given you perhaps a direction in terms of how you can respond. I really do encourage you. If you haven't yet shared with someone the things that you're struggling with, please do. We're not meant to do this alone. That's why the church is here. Come talk with one of us. We'd love to pray for you this morning in your community group. Share with them. Uh, There's help for us in each other and the Spirit of God. For those uh, who have failed the test of faith recently, you need to know that God forgives, that he's a forgiving God. He's a gracious God. Even failed tests of faith, where you right now may feel far away from the Lord, and you're just surprised that you even made it here this morning, you need to know he can strengthen us through those things if we turn back to him. If we repent, say, Lord, I, I wish I had responded differently. I wish I had stronger faith. Help me. Work it in me. He'll be gracious. He will do that. For the rest of us, I hope this has helped us to develop a theology of suffering, of trials, that we might understand what God is doing. Maybe not this moment, Praise God if it's a moment of peace, but it will come. My hope for us as a church is that we will be able to walk as people of faith, people without fear, people who when the trials come, others can look to us and say, how is it that you're so stable? How is it that you're so secure? And our answer won't be, well, let me just tell you about you know, how great I am, how strong I am, how I've been tempered and grown in life and pulled myself up by my bootstraps, which no one understands what that means anymore, but you know what I mean. It's not that. We, we just have an opportunity to say, it's, let me tell you about Jesus. Amen. Let me tell you about what he's done. Let me tell you about, even now, I'm thankful. Let me tell you why. That's, that's our opportunity in the midst of every challenging moment to glorify him because we actually know him. Let me pray that for us. Lord Jesus, I do pray you would help us. Lord, uh, you are intimately acquainted with the trials of life, Lord Jesus. To talk to you about trials is just, you know, you know our suffering. You know the difficulties. You endured them yourself, even though you deserved none of it. Lord, I thank you for that. I pray that, I pray that we would be mindful of that. I pray that we would come to you early and often when there's trials and difficulties. I pray that we would not be confused or be surprised when difficult times come. I pray that we would see them as opportunities to draw nearer to you. Lord, not that we would, we would want life to be hard, but just that we would acknowledge that the greatest need of our life is to see that our faith is secure, that, that it is not hollow, and that you, you do this in us. You grow us in our faith through these challenges. So Lord, help us to embrace that. And Lord, I really pray, especially for those that are struggling this morning, that we would find joy and thankfulness in the midst of our sufferings because, Jesus, we see you more clearly, because we experience you more fully as our Savior, as our Lord. And so please be with us. Please help us, even now, to respond in worship 
even if it's one of the most difficult days of our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.